Good morning. I'm glad to be with you, church. Uh, I apologize. I had my tie on when I came in, and then I was already just drenched, so I took it off. I'm hoping that will give me some relief, and you will probably be less distracted if you're not watching me sweat the whole time. So um, thank you. <laughs> if you'll turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 9, we're going to continue our series, and we're going to read verses 30 to 50. And I will apologize in advance. Joey's telling me to go louder. Okay. I'll apologize in advance. This is going to go long today. Uh, normally I have about eight to nine pages. Today I have 14. So we'll do our best to get through it. But let's read in Mark 9, uh, verse, starting with verse 30. The word of the Lord. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him, and when they came to Capernaum, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. 
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we, as we dive into your word and we see how rich it is, and we see blessings for us and warnings for us, help us tremble. And may your word through our ears go into our minds and take root in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a lot to get through today, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on introduction. We'll just go right into the text. We'll start with verse 30. They went on from there and they passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. There's a little mention of traveling here, and I'm not going to comment on it too much other than to explain that they're staying local in these well-traveled areas that Jesus has spent a lot of time in, in his ministry. If this trip was indeed from Mount Tabor, that's a, that's a hypothesis of where the Mount of Transfiguration may have been. If it was from Mount Tabor to Capernaum, that's about 25 miles. So it's a, it's a long walk, but it's doable in a day. This area is one of Jesus' most heavily traveled, and so you can imagine the people in that area recognizing him as he traveled. The text is telling us here he's wanting not to be noticed on this particular trip, even though it's likely that people would notice him. Why doesn't he want to be noticed? Verse 31 tells us that he was teaching the disciples, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. It says he was teaching them. This word, teaching, it's in the imperfect indicative tense. What does that mean? That means it was ongoing. It was, it was a teaching that was continuing to happen. So the text is not telling us that Jesus just spoke this particular sentence one time, and then they walked in silence the rest of the, the, rest of the way. No, it means that this was the thing he wanted to teach the disciples that day while they were walking. His death and resurrection were the main points of that day's lesson. So he probably spent considerable time on it. We remember from previous sermons, even David telling us last week, that Jesus doesn't want to be seen as a political figure. He doesn't want to draw unwarranted attention to himself, especially attention that diverts the focus off of why he came. He didn't come to make himself famous, and he didn't come to be a revolutionary. Why did he come? He came to do the will of his Father. He came to seek and save the lost. And like he's telling the disciples in this passage, he came to die. So take that into the context. He wants to spend the day teaching this to his disciples and not be interrupted by crowds. Verse 32 says, but they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. If the disciples didn't understand, do you think the crowds would understand? Of course not. Teaching this to the crowds would accomplish the exact opposite of what needs to happen. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane where the mob shows up to arrest Jesus? 
And Peter perceives a threat to Jesus and he, he pulls out his sword and he chops off that one guy's ear, one of the servants. Jesus doesn't want a band of men to join together to defend him against a threat to his life. That's not the goal. So that's a possible reason why Jesus doesn't want anyone to know about his journey. Plainly, from the text, we can understand that he has just set this time aside to again tell his disciples about his death and his resurrection. And he doesn't want the teaching to be disturbed. Let's talk about the disciples' understanding a little bit. It says that they didn't understand and they were afraid to ask him. This word for not understanding, it has a connotation of ignorance. They're just not grasping it at all. They can't even conceive of what he was talking about. It's completely foreign to them, like another language. Why didn't they understand? The short answer is that God did not give them the understanding. The Holy Spirit did not reveal the meaning to them. Do you remember from just a few weeks ago in chapter 8 where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ and the Matthew account tells us that that Peter only came by this confession because the Holy Spirit gave him the understanding. The Mark account's just a few pages back. You could keep your finger there and look at it while we talk about this. It's just a couple of pages. The Holy Spirit has not given the disciples the understanding of Jesus' words here in chapter 9. For whatever reason, Jesus' death and resurrection is still going to remain a mystery to them for now. David talked to us a little bit about this last week also. The disciples have a wrong working definition of who the Son of Man is. This message about dying and rising from the dead, it challenges all of their preconceived notions about who the Messiah is and what he's supposed to accomplish when he comes. It's not merely confusing to them, it's impossible to them. So that's why it tells us they were ignorant of it. Not even capable of understanding. At the end of verse 32, it says they were afraid to ask him. Why were they afraid to ask him? Think about Peter again. Last time he had a conversation with Jesus about this topic, what happened? Peter started rebuking Jesus, and then Jesus says what? In chapter 8, verse 33, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of men. It has not been long since that conversation. I'm sure it's still fresh in Peter's mind. So if I was Peter, I probably wouldn't want to ask about it either. What point am I going to make from this? Sometimes God only reveals things to us partially and he doesn't give us the full understanding. I want you to know that is okay. Deuteronomy 29, 29, it tells us the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. If you knew everything, Would you know how great your need is of him? He doesn't want you to know everything. He just wants you to be faithful with what he has given you clearly 
Does this also impress upon you your need for him to get wisdom and understanding? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 8 that knowledge does what? It puffs up. He goes on to say in chapter 13 that even if he had all knowledge, the knowledge alone isn't worth very much. It's just noise. Matthew Henry's commentary on this verse in 1 Corinthians says, There's no proof of ignorance more common than conceit of knowledge. And if I can paraphrase, he goes on to say later that Satan uses the conceit of knowledge as just a powerful temptation to sin as the sensuality of worldly lust. Do you hear what Mr. Henry is saying? Thinking highly of yourself because you know a lot of theology, way more than those baby Christians over there and definitely more than the unbelievers outside, that conceit is just as sinful and offensive to God as other sins that we look down our nose over. A great theologian can walk through the door of pride just as easily as a foolish young man can walk through the door of a brothel. What's my point? Maybe you're, you're a newer Christian and you don't know very much. Let what you don't know and what you don't understand drive you deeper into God's word, deeper into dependence on him. Ask him for that wisdom and understanding. James 1.4 says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. God isn't annoyed when you come to him and ask him to help you understand. In fact, he delights in it so much that he gives it generously. Ask God to help you grow in knowledge and stature. Ask him to help you understand more. Now, what about what you do know and what you do understand? Some of us have been doing this for a while, right? And we have more understanding. Cherish it. But, and this is a big but, let that cherishing drive you to humility and thankfulness that in God's grace, the Holy Spirit gave you the spiritual treasure of knowledge and understanding. Wisdom and understanding come from God, not from us. Ask God to help you grow in knowledge and stature. Proverbs 2.6, For the Lord gives wisdom. Out of his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So next, let's see where the disciples turn their conversation after they heard about Jesus' death and they failed to comprehend it. Let's see if they had the attitude that I just asked you to put on. Pondering Jesus' words in humility. Reading in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Really, guys? You know, this isn't the only time that we see this. You can turn over a couple pages to look at chapter 10, starting with verse 35. James and John are going to ask Jesus to honor them particularly by granting that they could sit on either side of him in his glory. They're not talking about sitting on either side of him at the dinner table 
in heaven. They're asking for a permanent position of exalted status. They want to be Jesus' right-hand man and left-hand man. Sometimes we read this and we think, what a strange request. Every time I read it, especially right after verse 32 through 34, where Jesus again tells them about his death, I think to myself, this is, this is weird. This is really tone deaf. Jesus was just talking about how he's going to die. And a few minutes later, James and John are trying to figure out who's going to be the most important. Doesn't that seem weird to you? It's not. Let me help you understand why. We already discussed that they are completely ignorant of this idea of Jesus' death and resurrection. They can't even conceive of it. So when Jesus uses the phrase, the Son of Man, like David taught us about last week, their minds revert back to what they always thought the Son of Man was, who he would be and what he would do. When James and John ask to have a place of honor after Jesus is in his glory, can you see why Jesus says in Mark 10:38, you don't even know what you're asking. You guys don't even know what you're talking about. They think Jesus' glory means gaining more popularity, raising an army, overthrowing the Romans, restoring Israel to her place of honor among the nations, and then this nation-state of Israel becoming rich and powerful with Jesus as the king, and that is the ultimate outcome. They don't understand it's so much more than that. We can look back on them after 2,000 years of church history and countless scholars studying this to help us understand it and, th and think to ourselves, what a bunch of dummies. I know I used to always think that. But let's remind ourselves, they were just normal men to whom God had not yet revealed this part of his plan. They didn't have understanding because God had not given it to them. So Jesus will take the opportunity to give them a practical lesson that they do understand and redirect their hearts toward humility. Back in chapter 9, verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He wants to single out the disciples. Why single them out? Because they would be the leaders of the New Testament church. Their concept of leadership right now means honor and position and status coming with authority. He wants to change their concept of leadership to one of servanthood and humility accompanying authority. What does that look like? Just a minute ago, we looked at Mark 10. You can turn back there and study that later because he's going to expand on it further in that passage. But instead, today, let's look at Philippians 2. Go ahead and turn there. We'll start with verse 5. This was our scripture reading this morning. Part of it. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see this? Jesus himself, being very God, did not grasp for his own honor, his own position, his status. Instead, he emptied himself and took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. How often do we have this attitude that something is beneath us? Serving others, cleaning up a mess, having to do some tedious chore that nobody else wants to do, things that are beneath us. Go back to Jesus. Not only did he do what was beneath him, he became what was beneath him in order to serve. This is the humility that is required of every Christian, but especially of those in authority. Nothing is beneath you. Let's look a little deeper into this. If the humiliation of becoming a man wasn't enough, he went further. He became obedient. The one who deserves all adoration and glory and power and majesty and dominion from all of creation, the one who commands creation, the one whom all things obey, became obedient. That's not all. It goes even farther. The very source of life itself, the one who Peter calls the prince of life in his sermon in Acts chapter 3. He, the author of life, the prince of life, subjects himself to death in order to serve. In order to serve, Jesus did not just do what was beneath him. He became what was beneath him. That's your example. Continuing in verse 36. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. There's a little bit more language about this in Matthew 10. You can study that on your own later. What I want you to get here is that Jesus pulls a real-life illustration out before them in the house. He invites a child into his embrace. It's a clear picture to an ancient Jew, and even to us in spite of our culture to some extent. A child has no status. They have no fame, no renown. They're not important. They have no power no resources. They can't repay you for favors. They don't know anything. They might make you laugh when they say something funny, but they cannot meaningfully contribute to you, your wealth, your time, your success, your reputation. 
When he says to receive them, it means to welcome them, to embrace them, just like he's doing with this child. In Greek, it's dexatai, dexatai. It's a hospitality word. You can see that in the Matthew account. It's the same word from earlier in Mark when Jesus is sending the disciples out to preach in chapter 6. Do you remember this? He tells them what to do when the people in the town wouldn't receive them. That's dexatai. We said it's hospitality, and it's more than just greeting someone. It's welcoming them in, drawing them close. The necessary implications of that being to treasure them, to be vulnerable with them, to share what you have with them. When you welcome someone to stay in your home, it costs you something, right? Time, energy, money, food, the comfort of your own privacy. In reference to a child, the disciples in the culture of their time would think of tending to children as women's work, far below a man's status. He's telling them what I told you earlier. My disciples, nothing is beneath you. The one who wants to be the greatest is the one who understands that nothing is beneath him. And he lives that way. Beloved, this is true biblical humility. This is how we imitate Jesus. In obedience to God for the sake of those who are precious in his sight, whether they be little kids, young believers falling into sin traps, a brother or a sister who needs your special care and attention, or a dirty job that nobody else wants to do. Let nothing be beneath you. Like the God who dispenses wisdom generously to all who ask. He doesn't get annoyed when his children come to him. Receive those who need your help. Don't let anything be beneath you even to the point of suffering and self-sacrifice, like Jesus who became obedient, even to the point of death. Do it in love. This is servanthood. And this is what's required of a Christian, and especially a Christian who wants to be a, le a leader among God's people. Let's move on to the next section, beginning with verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Understand here that John kind of interrupts Jesus. Jesus has this child probably sitting in his lap. It says he was sitting down and he's embracing him in his arms, so he's probably sitting in his lap. And he's explaining humility and servant leadership with the disciples gathered around him. And at first glance, it might look like John is kind of coming out of nowhere with this question, with this interruption. Why is John so concerned about this other guy casting out demons? His mind went there because Jesus had just said in verse 37, whoever receives such a child, receives me. Emphasis on the whoever. You remember John from earlier being concerned with his status after Jesus entered into his glory. In John's mind, this small group of disciples is the inner circle 
They're the ones who get to do miracles. They're the ones who get to preach in Jesus' name. They're the ones who are going to rule and reign with Jesus in his glory. Now, all of that is true, objectively. But do you see how small John's picture is of what Jesus came to accomplish? In John's mind, all he knows about is these disciples. He doesn't know about any other whoever's. Do you see how John limits the reach of ministry to the small group of disciples because he does not yet have the understanding from the Spirit? We can look now and we can see that every disciple of Jesus, Jew and Gentile alike, men and women, old people and children, married or single, can know Jesus and have the Spirit of God in us and bear the fruit of the Spirit. John didn't understand this yet. The picture of the kingdom of God in his mind was still a lot smaller, maybe even limited to just the disciples. You can understand why he would think so, too. Just a few chapters ago, Jesus gave the disciples the power to cast out demons. As far as John knew, nobody else had been given that power. John's saying, he wasn't there when you gave us this authority, and he's not here with us now, so we stopped him. Why did they stop him? The Bible doesn't tell us exactly, but if we understand John's mentality, we can see confusion about others having the power of God when they aren't with the only known designated group. We can also imagine desire to be one of the few who have access to the power of God. I won't say jealousy, but maybe even a little bit of a feeling of competition, particularly right after, after the disciples had failed to cast out that other demon in verse 17 from last week. But look at Jesus' response in verse 39. Do not stop him. And look at the reason Jesus gives. No one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who's not against us is for us. Jesus helps John understand there is no competition among God's people. If you truly are in Christ, you're on the same team as everyone else who is in Christ. You know, there's an Old Testament example of a similar scenario in Numbers chapter 11. You can turn there, Numbers 11. We're going to look at verses 24 through 30. Numbers 11, starting with verse 24. Let's read it. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, 
My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Do you see what happened here? The spirit falls on the designated elders and they start prophesying. It's a miracle. And these two other guys, Eldad and Medad, they weren't among the 70 elders elected to help with the work that God had given Moses to do. Yet God deemed that they should prophesy also. Who knows why? But someone comes up and says, Moses, these two other guys, they're prophesying too. And good old Joshua says, Moses, stop them. Look at Moses' response. Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. I didn't attribute the word jealousy when describing John, but Moses does use it here. Then look what he says after. He says, I wish God would pour out his spirit on all of his people like that. When we see someone else doing a good work in Christ's name, and we know that they are truly in Christ because the work is indeed good, and it's consistent with his word, and it bears good fruit, why would we be in competition with them or jealous of them? Application for us here. Application for the men that stand in this pulpit, specifically. We're a small church. We preach the word, and we try to do it really faithfully. And yet, year after year, we have stayed a small church, at least for 39 years of my life. Isn't it kind of easy to get jealous when you look at other faithful churches and you see them having tons of babies and nice ministries for every age group and their staff are well paid and they're preaching the gospel and people are getting saved and being drawn there in large numbers. God's just blessing them. Isn't it easy to look at that and wonder why God doesn't bless you in the same way? Can't you even start to wish that God wouldn't bless them so much? How petty. How petty. And yet we do it. So I'm calling myself to repentance here. And if you've ever felt this way, you too. When you see others accomplishing work in Jesus' name and succeeding, rejoice and give thanks to God. And then put your hands back to the task that he gave you to do. And what task might he give you? Verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Do you remember the humility that we talked about? Jesus takes John's interruption, answers him, and then weaves the answer back into the teaching he was bringing before. How do we understand this cup of cold water? It's because not all of us are going to do mighty works. Some of us are going to clean bathrooms. Some of us are going to do the church accounting. Some of us are going to change light bulbs and fix splotchy paint. Some of us are going to change diapers. 
Some of us are going to simply encourage other believers by doing a small kindness to them, like a cup of water. Do you remember Carmen? I hope you remember Carmen. She made cookies. She delivered them with a smile and the utmost humility. Let me tell you that her cookie making and smiling, done truly in humility, in Jesus' name, that is holier and more pleasing to God than any man standing up here and preaching a great sermon done in competition with another preacher who can, to see who can draw a bigger crowd. When you do a work, small or great, in humility, truly, in Jesus' name, and for his sake, and for the love of those people that he loves, he sees you doing it, and he will reward you. Do you understand there's no shame for you in your works being small, just as there's no glory for you in your works being mighty? Let's move on to the last section. We're going to see the true ugliness of sin. And I've got five pages to go, so bear with me. We'll, we'll start reading with verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. You can see Jesus with this child still in his embrace, pulled in his arms close to him. Do you see how much Jesus loves the little ones? We understand that he's talking about children who are believers here. It says so right in that verse. But by extension, we can also apply this description to believers who don't have any status. They don't have very much status. Baby Christians or, or even folks who just have a simple faith and they live in a simple obedience. These same people who won't be doing mighty works, but will be doing the small ones to God's glory in Jesus' name. Like making cookies or bringing a cup of cold water. Remember, he was talking to these men that would become the leaders of the New Testament church. In the Luke passage, describing this same conversation, Jesus elaborates. In Luke 17, 2, Jesus says that temptations to sin are sure to come. Temptations to sin are inevitable. But then he says, woe to the one through whom temptation comes. God's people will be tempted and sometimes they will fall to sin in their temptations. But you, man of God, leader in his church, don't be the one that led them astray. Don't be the one they used as an excuse. Don't be the one with the poor example. For if one of God's little ones sins because of you, God's wrath burns against you. As you shackle the heavy weight of sin around a little one that will drag them down to destroy them and drown them, something worse is prepared for you. This warning is particularly for elders and men in positions of authority. But wait a minute. The rest of you are not off the hook. Because sure, lots of Christians look up to whoever's standing in the pulpit or sitting at the piano. But every Christian has someone looking up to them whether they know it or not. Continuing in verse 43. 
And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. This is definitely for all of us. This is a harsh warning, but Jesus is not mincing words. In fact, it's so important, he's going to use a graphic picture, three graphic pictures. This is too important. If you heard nothing else today, hear this. If you slept through the rest, wake up. This is for you, Sovereign Grace Bible Church. Where am I going? Is Jesus telling us to disfigure our physical bodies and that's somehow going to help us not to sin? Of course not. No, he's using holy hyperbole so that you pay attention and so that you understand this is important. He's already made the point earlier. You're either in or you're out. There's no in-between. You're either one of God's people or not one of God's people. You're a vessel of mercy or a vessel of wrath. You're a sheep or a goat. If you are one of his, you are meant to be radically different from the world. If you're in, you must be different. You will be different. But while it is God alone and nothing you do yourself that saves you, that's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, God makes you a co-laborer with him in your own sanctification. Your progress toward holiness. Otherwise, Paul would not command us in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, to put to death the deeds of the flesh, preceded by verse 12, which also says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But that's not all that verse 13 says. God doesn't just save you and say, good luck. What does verse 13 also say? It says, by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh. The Holy Spirit helps us in our sanctification. Praise God. That's His grace. He gives us a new status, not just as believers, but as holy people who are meant to glorify Him. People He wants to possess. He calls us a kingdom of priests in 1 Peter 2.9. Listen, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Does God want to possess anything that is ugly? Anything that is tarnished? Anything that is sinful? No. That's why he says he is perfecting us so that we can proclaim his excellencies. When we're saved, we're in the light. We're not in darkness anymore. We don't even want the darkness. He drew us into the light. We don't resent his law for condemning us anymore because it exposed our sin and showed us our need of him. Instead, we love his law. Why do we love it? Because he says he writes it on our very hearts. 
Jeremiah 31, 33, he puts his word in you. He makes it part of you. He writes his law on your heart. So what sin am I talking about? I don't know about any of us going into brothels or waking up in our own vomit after a night of heavy drinking. At least, I don't know about it. I hope that's not happening here. I don't see too many public shipwrecks in our church, but you know what I do see? Both in our church and in the church at large, a lot of compromise on what we consume. A lot of compromise on what we consume. I quote Romans 1 often. I'm going to do it again today. Well, starting with verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Now you'll look at me and say, wait a minute, Elliot, we're not doing all that. Did you see the last line? Giving approval to those who practice them? Look at that list of sins. It shows up a lot of other places in Scripture, too. You could find probably five or six in the New Testament. When we watch these things on TV for our entertainment, do you know that that's giving approval? When we watch with our eyes all manner of wickedness and it doesn't turn our stomach and we don't turn it off immediately in disgust and in fact we wonder, what other sensual thing am I going to see next and it excites us? We're giving approval. Do you know what's the difference between Game of Thrones and pornography? The difference is, for some reason, a lot of Christians seem to think they can sit in a well-lit room with their friends and watch the one and talk about how good the story was, and the other one is a shameful addiction that only pitiful sinners partake of alone in the dark. A big budget and a better story doesn't make it fit for our consumption. Just because your wife will sit next to you while you watch it doesn't make it acceptable in God's sight. It doesn't mean it pleases Him. Now after this, someone's going to come to me and say, well, that's just your opinion. This is a matter of conscience and Christian liberty. No, it's not. And that's utter foolishness. We are meant to be people of the light. How can we take pleasure in consuming darkness? It doesn't have to be TV show or movies. It could be anything. Are you tempted to think God doesn't have the affairs of our country and the whole universe that he made under his control? Do you watch the news and then you tremble in fear because that opposing political party is ruining everything? That fear, that sin. Can a Facebook comment ruin your whole day and make you hate your neighbor? And then you ruin your witness to that person by replying back with some snarky, hateful thing? 
wickedness. I'm not coming after your beer and wine today. I'm coming after your TV, your computer, your tablet, and your smartphone, your keyboard. If Netflix causes you to sin, cancel it. If Facebook causes you to sin, get rid of it. I don't care if it's the newspaper. Stop buying it. Guard your life against sin so that you will be different from the world. Beloved friends, I am preaching to myself first. I hope you know that. Live intentionally so that you don't stumble across it by accident. Would you go into a restaurant and order food from the menu when you know the chef at that restaurant likes to occasionally sneak poison into the recipes? He doesn't even sneak it. He puts it right on the top for you to see. Then why do we turn our TV on and press play on whatever's new without thinking about it, without guarding our eyes carefully, without guarding our ears and what's going into our minds and taking root in our hearts? Psalm 101.3, what does the psalmist say? I will not set before my eyes anything that's worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. Do you hate the work of those who fall away? Do you hate it? Why would you hate it? What's the alternative? Maybe you struggle with this like I did, like I still do sometimes. Go back to the poisoned food. Do you know why this poisoned food still tastes good to you? It's because you haven't developed a taste for the goodness of God. You don't cherish Him the most. You don't see His beauty. You don't want to dwell in His house and experience the pleasure of being with God. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Why do we love these things of darkness and take pleasure in perversion and destruction? It's because we don't take pleasure in God. Psalm 16:11 the psalmist says, "You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there is pleasure forevermore." What about Psalm 19 talking about God's law? Starting with verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Listen to this. It's wonderful. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Don't you want to be clean and true and righteous? More to be desired are they than gold, than anything, even much fine gold. They are sweeter also than honey. Do you see that taste? Drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Read the Psalms, my dear friends. Plead with God that you might have the attitude that this psalmist had in understanding the beauty of God, the wonder of being in his presence, taking delight in his law, seeing the value of these everlasting words and the everlasting God from whom they proceed. Learn to love him. Learn to love him the most. 
the things of the world, these ugly, sinful things, you will see how tarnished they are by comparison. You will see how they do not shine. They are not valuable. You will start to see how they poison you. You will see how they are intended to bring you down to death. Jesus tells us in verse 48 in our text about that death. He says about hell, where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. Hell, it is eternal, conscious torment. I used to think that God was absent from hell and that's why it was so horrible because I wouldn't be with him there. Now I understand that in his omnipresence, God is just as much in hell as he is in heaven. But all you would experience of him there is his wrath forever. His holy anger burning against sin and rebellion, continually destroying those who hate him. Let's try to finish up. Verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. This is a really difficult verse. It's pretty abstract. And there's um, no small amount of controversy about the meaning. So I'm just going to help you understand what I understood from my study Bible and a few commentaries that I like to use. I, I went there for help. Jesus is now talking about believers in a different kind of fire. Not a consuming fire of wrath for those in hell, but a purifying fire meant to bring holiness to God's people. Look at Zechariah 13, 19. God is speaking about his people. He says, I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. John the Baptist prophesied in Matthew 3, 11, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Believers receive a different kind of fire. While it does afflict us and it can be painful, it is not a punishment, but a purification. And what about the salt? Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is another purifier and a preserver. This is a callback to Leviticus 2.13. Every meat sacrifice presented to God must be salted before it's put on the fire. We are living sacrifices. God preserves us while he burns up our impurities. Have you ever cooked unseasoned meat? It doesn't smell like much. What about when you season it and then you start cooking it? It creates this pleasant Aroma, like Brent said earlier. I didn't know he was going to say that. When God salts believers and puts them into the fire, it makes a pleasing aroma to him. And what comes out of that fire is a delight to him. We will end with verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. We already said salt is a preservative and we're out of time and we've been out of time for a while so I'm not going to go deep into us being salt and light. Look up salt and light later on your own from Matthew 5. Salt that's not salty is useless. 
this sin that we're talking about, it takes away our saltiness. If believers aren't holy, instead of preserving the world and our neighbors by our witness and by being different, we become like dirt. We're only useful for being trampled on. Have salt in yourselves. Live holy lives. Be different. Get rid of things that make you the same as your unsaved neighbors. We are to live at peace with them, but we're not supposed to be like them. We are to be altogether different. Be so different that they notice. I have made today an earnest plea to you, church. Maybe you have things to repent of. Maybe you have things to cut off. Maybe you think I'm an idiot or a hypocrite. Maybe you think I'm being too hard on you. Your issue is worth the book, not with me. But please talk to me afterward, and I will work through this with you and help you. Any of the elders, any of the men here, we would love to help you with this. I will tell you, the leaders in this church love you dearly. We love you, church. We want to help you see the beauty of Christ and all of God's goodness. We want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. And when you really do taste it, you will start to lose your appetite for the ugly things in the world, the things that poison you. I don't want to end there because there was a lot of bad news today for those that love their sin and and they despise God's law and His goodness. The gospel is good news to those who are perishing. Amen? So you don't have to stay stuck in your sin. You don't have to stay on the path to hell. Your affections can change. You can see His beauty and His worth, and then you can be adopted by Him into His family and become a son or daughter of the King of Heaven. You can be that pleasing aroma to God in your sanctification. Enter into the family of God. And believers, learn to love Him more than you love the world. Earnestly desire to see His beauty. Love His law and obey it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And in so doing, be at peace with one another. Let's sing a song of praise to God.